When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome, everyone, to the 124th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. In this episode, we address what is a disintegrating student and how COVID contributed to that and how to prepare your teens for the school year. To address this, I've invited Dr. Janine Janot to be a guest on our show. Janine is the founder of The Balanced Student and author of The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. She has over 25 years of experience working with children, teenagers, and young adults in both public and private school settings, spanning preschool through college. Janine has a master's degree in school psychology from the Ohio State University and a doctorate in child and developmental psychology from the University of Connecticut. She has also been a college instructor teaching psychology courses and freshman seminars for the past 10 years. In this episode, we also talk about how today's kids are being raised in an achievement culture and that they've become data points and how this leads to teens feeling overwhelmed and pressured. You're going to especially love Janine's tips to be productive and well, specifically around organization, time management, study skills, and habits, mindset, stress, sleep, and screen. So welcome, Janine. I am so glad you're here. Thank you, Colleen. It's great to be here. Yes. So I really appreciate your time, and I know my moms are going to really benefit from what you share today. You recently published The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. So what is The Disintegrating Student, and what motivated you to write this book? So I'm a parent of three, um, and my youngest is 18, just graduated from high school, and I taught college for about 10 years, and I was noticing the struggle and anxiety in our, you know, particularly middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students. And I decided I would start academic coaching to kind of give them, you know, the skills that I could see that they were really needing. So through the coaching, I was just really surprised by the kinds of clients that were showing up to see me. They were these really, really bright, you know, talented, high achieving kids who all of a sudden just kind of hit a wall and started to fall apart. And what I discovered over years of coaching these kids is, you know, because these this is something that comes out of the blue with them. They're the kids who, through middle middle school, elementary school, didn't 
you know, didn't study much, just showed up to class, got good grades. They didn't really need a lot of skills. But what was happening is they were reaching a, a rigor tipping point. And so there came a point, and as our rigor has kind of been ticking downward, you know, getting younger and younger, that they're getting more and more rigor available to them. Basically, they're just hitting a wall of rigor and they didn't have the skills to address the challenges they were facing, excuse me, academically. So that was their rigor tipping point. They kind of fall apart. The parents get very concerned because nobody knows exactly what's happening. And so I wrote a book to kind of describe all the internal and external um, factors that are contributing to this disintegration of our, you know, perfectly capable kids. You know, I'm a therapist and I've seen that a lot too with both middle school, high school and college. And it seems like at some point in those years, they come to see me because of that. So I found your book really, really interesting. So it's an important book. Yeah, I so, think you're probably seeing that that mental health the mental well-being piece of it where the anxiety and sometimes even depression end up being the outcome if they don't figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. I see a lot of girls who have really significant anxiety and panic attacks. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is very important. Do you think more teens have become disintegrated students because of COVID? And what concerns do you have about students returning to school in the fall? So I think COVID was hard on everybody, but particularly our students. And so what I saw last year um, in, in my coaching with students was all students were falling apart, you know, at varying levels, but it was really impacting all students. And where I see the disintegration really flowing from is this um, kind of high stakes achievement culture that our kids are being educated in. And so last year, because of virtual learning, because of inconsistency, because of illness, because of, you know, every family had different stressors put on them, all those things combined on top of worrying about their GPAs, worrying about their grades for classes, worrying about staying on track in the, you know, you know, the high level math courses that they're taking, all those things put so much pressure on kids. That's how I saw it sort of expand outward during COVID was all the kids, you know, came to me unmotivated and not knowing what to do. And the biggest thing I noticed impacting the students that not, not only the students I saw, but I talked to a lot of students. And the thing I heard the most was, I don't, care anymore. I'm mm. unmotivated. I mean, motivation was the number one thing that parents yeah. and students said, I need to fix this. But prior to COVID, the students who had fallen apart, who I would think they would always say, "We, I care so much. <laughs> I really care. I just, I'm kind of paralyzed. I don't know what to do. And what I ended up hearing about mid-year last year, around the second semester, I started hearing students saying, you know, I used to care. I know I should care but I don't care. And that really freaked them out. And I, I right, rightfully so. And so that was very concerning for them. And so it made this year even that much more difficult. And I think what was happening was a lot of burnout because of all the different stressors, because they had been procrastinating so much. There was just a lot going on. And I think they were just shutting down as many of us you know, may have experienced on and off during the pandemic. So I think it was a very normal 
response to their year. Do you think no motivation is connected or the I don't care is connected to burnout? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was very unique to the context of last year. Yes. Because again, they want to care <laughs> and they know right. they should care, all right. those things. So they were, they were aware that this feels weird not to care. And, and, it, and it is, it's disconcerting. Yeah. What I found, like the kind of the mental health part of that is especially with the girls, and I see a lot of girls in my practice, but that isolation really messed up their social connections and their groups and sense of belonging. And I think that also contributed to the I don't care. It, it, it was, uh, they, I think they were hit on multiple levels. I agree. I yeah. agree. And with just without the bandwidth to deal with all of it. Yeah. So how can parents support their kids this summer as they return to school? Oh, so my like deepest wish this summer is that all of our students get a break. Yeah. That, you know, when I see things or read things or hear things about remediation and recovery over the summer and tutoring and catching up, uh, that makes me a little uncomfortable because I'm with burnout, as you know, as a therapist, the thing that's required there to come out of it is rest and some relaxation and your body and mind are basically working together to tell you, you have to stop and you need a break and we need to, you know, get you in a better place so that you can function again. So if, if our students don't get that opportunity, that really worries me because they're going to come back to school in the fall you know, still kind of crispy fried and it's not going to go very well. So I'd love to see them take a strong, hard break. I mean, I've encouraged my clients this summer, you know, let's just, let's just put this on pause for a little bit. You take the time you need, you have some fun, connect with your friends again, all the things. And then we'll circle back closer to when you're getting ready to go to school or when school starts. And so I'm hoping that, you know, that the schools are going to be open to that concept of meeting kids where they are, both um, academically and psychologically when they come back to school. Because I think the priority has to be that schools look at our students and say, we want you to know it's okay not to be okay. And we're going to go at your pace. We're going to meet you where you are. And it's going to be okay. (laughs) That's, I think that's the best thing we can do for our students. So for parents, the the idea would be to kind of not worry too much, not kind of panic in anticipation that your child's going to fall too far behind, their grade point's not going to recover, they're not going to be able to apply to the colleges. Uh, I think we need to make sure that we're kind of keeping that kind of panic thinking under control so that it doesn't trickle down to our kids who already have enough things that they're worrying about. And the other thing I would encourage parents to do this summer is to really have some open, honest, intentional conversations with their kids about what are the expectations for next year. Because what I've found with parents, and you probably find this too, with parents and teens in particular, the stories in each other's heads are oftentimes do not match up. You know, they everybody's interpreting the situation a little bit differently. I will hear students tell me all the time, well, you know, my parent, my parents could be really disappointed if I get a B in this class. Or one of the things they tell me a lot is um, my parents care more about my grades 
than yeah. they do me. I hear that and too. I, yeah. And I know that's not true. Uh, and my kids have probably even said that about me. And it, I can tell you it's not true. The problem is if we as parents are not really explicit and repeatedly explicit about how we feel about their performance as a student, their obligation as a student, then we run that risk of them misinterpreting, you know, all of our questions about school, which comes from a well-intentioned place. You know, how'd you do on the test? You know, how'd everybody else do on the test? Um, did you study for the thing? Did you turn in the thing? Have you filled out the application? In our kids' minds, that comes across as, is this all you care about? Mm-hmm. And you yeah. can understand it. And what it really is, is as a parent, and I've been there a million times myself, we're just concerned about their well-being. We're concerned about their, you know, their future, their success, their happiness. We're trying to see ahead to make sure there aren't, you know, bad consequences for them. And, but we don't say that out loud. We don't say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm feeling anxious about waiting to the last minute for this thing or whatever it is. And I think if we can start as parents practicing that, I have found in my own relationships with my kids over the years, I've gotten better at that. And it, it has really, really helped yes. because then your child can understand, oh, I get that because I'm worried about it too. So yeah. it's, it's not being um, kind of turned around in their heads in a way that's not helpful for the relationship. Yeah, you're, you're one of my favorite kind of guests because you have parented kids and you've parented the teens and you know what it feels like inside of a mother and yet you also kind of have this expertise and you're listening to these kids and their side of it. Because I do think for, for moms, and I felt it too, that you know, you're kind of alone with your own kid. You feel like your own, your kid is the only one who is behind and you feel this pressure to get them, you know, ready. And, and you're right. I've heard a kajillion times. That's all my mom cares about because that is obsessing in our heads. That's the only thing that comes out of our mouth. Mm -hmm. So I think if we're giving our moms who are listening a really great gift, have some fun. Have some fun. Yeah. Like I sat with one of my college girls who's, uh, who just stress, 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 stressing about school. And I said, okay, we're going to make a list of 20 things you could do this summer that are going to be fun. Like your job, your prescription. is, <laughs> And it was really hard for her. It was really hard, which I think is crazy because I, when I was in teen, I mean, I knew how to play, but a lot of these teens don't. You know, right. they need they need permission, like you're saying, to not be 100 percent doing things at the 100 percent level, 100 percent of the time. That's the culture they've been educated yes, in. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you believe today's kids are being raised in an achievement culture and that they've become data points. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so. I think over the last probably 30 years, we've been, um, this achievement culture has been developing and snowballing. And um, certainly our, you know, Gen Zs have been raised in it from the very beginning. And, and what it is, is basically we have come to value the data over other aspects of education. So the learning, the curiosity, you know, all the, all the things I kind of think of as being educated in the 70s and 80s. 
right now what matters most is, you know, the grade, the score, the SAT, ACT score, all, all those kinds of things are what students know matters. So they feel like data points and they are responding as such. So how that's translating is they are valuing the grade and they will get the grade at any cost. And so that means things like cheating are just widespread now. Um, there's lots of ways to cheat through tech. There's a lot of helping each other uh, among students. And it's it's very well accept, accepted, at least among students. Um, and and it's we all know as teachers, you know, the college instructors know, the high school teachers, the middle school, we, we're all aware too that it's going on. And but what it is is that it's it's, it's not malicious and like I think of cheating when I was in school in the you know eighties that you know oh my gosh you got caught cheating people would talk about you it'd be a bad thing now it's like that's just the way it's done and the purpose is to check the box they need they know they need to get this homework assignment completed they know they need to get you know this done and so it's a check the box kind of mentality and students will tell me they have a a threshold. So some students will say, well, yeah, of course you cheat on a project or a homework assignment or, you know, a check the box kind of thing. Um, but they won't necessarily cheat on a unit test. So, you know, so it's not just that I'll cheat on everything, but some of these lower level things that help their grades along, that's very accepted. Yeah, that is sad. Like it is, it is sad, but uh, the, the positive thing I take away from it is they are really, um, uh, you know, empathetic toward each other as students. They are so willing to help each other yeah. out because they all understand the pressure that they're under. So that's one kind of interesting, positive caveat. Um, it, it's a terrible scenario for learning because that's the thing. Students learning is totally secondary to making sure their grade and their grade point averages and that kind of stuff is where they need it to be. So yeah. uh, oftentimes students will say, look, I just need to get an A. I don't care about this. I don't need to learn this. I don't want to learn this. And that's not what we want our students to be saying by the time they get to high school. Yeah. And, and that's what I meant by sad, that curiosity is just, mm. it's killed because of these data points. Mm -hmm. And, and I think with so much pressure and stress and, people having panic attacks and all of that, it's not conducive for learning. No, our students and, are showing up in threat response. So, yes, you know, there's, there's yes. there, oh, and you cannot, I mean, you are just there to protect your life in threat response. So, right, right. Okay, yeah. So t testing, test anxiety is just a thing I have to deal with so much more now than I used to. And what they don't understand is your brain is incapable of learning and thinking when you are in threat response. Yes, so absolutely. It's, it's a huge thing. Yeah. How can some of the good intentions that moms have cause unintended negative consequences? Oh, we moms, we do mean so well. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I always say this to parents, like when I do parent talks and stuff that, you know, sometimes you, when you listen to parenting things, you hear stuff and you just feel so bad or guilty about something that you've done. And I just, you know, I want to make sure nothing I ever say makes a parent feel that way because, and we are doing the best we can. And, you know, and some days we are rock star parents and some days we fall a little short and that's okay. And if you're just, if you're trying 
I think that says a great deal about a person as a parent. So having said that, some of the things we do, we're starting to parent a lot more out of fear than love. Mm -hmm. I mean, love is always overriding, but the love then drives the fear because we don't want these wonderful little people that we've created to have bad things happen to them, to experience those negative consequences. So we tend to maybe overprotect them more than they need to be. We're, we're raising a very young generation of kids. So by that, I mean, our 18-year-olds are a lot more like 15-year-olds used to be, and our 15-year-olds are a lot more like 13-year-olds used to be. And that has some benefits. So there's a lot less risk-taking um, in our teens. And you know, a lot of teens are staying a little closer to home, a little tighter with family, which all feels super nice and good in the family. But the consequence seems to be these kids go off to college or their next you know, adventure after high school and they're not quite prepared. So that's when, that's why binge drinking has become such a concerning problem in college. There hasn't been enough probably normal risk-taking behavior when they're still home where there's a lot more safety and support and they can be a little bit out of control when they go off on their own for the first time. So that's been kind of the downside to that. We help our kids oftentimes when they don't need it and when they don't want it. So they haven't even asked for it. And what that's ending up doing with a lot of our kids is making them feel like they can't handle it. So our kids already feel like they don't have any control over their lives, particularly with, you know, all the achievement culture stuff and the pressure around school. Uh, When parents come in and do everything for them, the subtle message is, I don't think you can handle it. Even though the intention behind it is oftentimes you're already stressed out enough. You know, I don't want to push you any further. I'm trying to help. But again, if we're, if we're, you know, I can think of times where there's application deadlines and as a parent, you're like, um, so have you, have you submitted your application yet? Have you filled out the application and you keep getting the you know response? I will, I've got this which I've never known I've got this to actually mean I've got this, (laughs) but I would hear that a lot. And, you know, the, the inclination is to just go do it yourself, to just take care of it. And I know a lot of times as parents, we give into that, but unfortunately we're not allowing our kids then to experience the natural consequences of not being responsible for what they need to do. And then the stakes get higher. So they go off to college and they're not checking their email or they didn't fill out an application or they didn't do something. And all of a sudden they've lost a scholarship or um, they've missed some sort of final exam makeup and they're going to fail the class. I mean, the the stakes get high and we want to make sure that our kids are experiencing that failure um, and those slip ups and those consequences. High school feels high stakes and it is to a certain extent, but it If they haven't been experiencing it by then, they need to start. It's in their best interest. Yeah. So what can moms do to help? I think the best way we can help it, it, sadly, I think it sounds too easy. It feels like maybe we're not doing enough parenting if, if you follow this advice. But my advice is that we show up as the warm, supportive people in our kids' lives consistently. We give them unconditional love and we open the lines of communication. 
those are the things that are protective for our kids. So when our kids are under high stress, they need to feel that there is somebody there they can trust who loves them um, and who accepts the ups and the downs. And that is huge. It's hard because, again, we have to kind of fight our own um, anxieties about what's going on and maybe have to uh, take a deep breath when we watch our kids, you know, heading to a failure, you know, a high consequence kind of event. What I have found having survived a few of those is they're never as bad as I anticipate. I always think <laughs> the world is going to end and somehow, you know, it, it's never as bad as I think. So hopefully that can <laughs> help the listeners think, okay, maybe I could give this a try just one time at least. And the other thing, you know, we want to do is our superpower as parents is modeling. So I talk a lot in my book about how important it is to help our kids develop a growth mindset around school. And, you know, you can't get in somebody's head and change their thinking, but you can certainly model what you want to see in your kids. So if your kid's a terrible sleeper, I, you know, I did this years and years ago, I started working on my own sleep and I did it quote unquote out loud. So my way of doing that is I have a big whiteboard in the kitchen and I put stuff on it to help remind myself, kind of coach myself. And then I'll talk to my kids about, Oh, here's what I'm doing. And they act like they're not listening and they might roll their <laughs> eyes and they certainly don't engage in conversation about it, but it's incredible. They're, they're wired to pay attention to us. They're it's definitely true. wired to pay it. And my son went up to college and he was so proud to send me stuff about what he was doing with his sleep. And I was like, oh my goodness, you were listening to me all those years. <laughs> so, you know, it, so if we're trying to do a, you know, help our kid with a growth mindset around school and maybe take some risks and accept some challenges. I know I did that in my family when I was writing the book. That was a huge, like vulnerable, scary thing for me to do. So I just talked about it a lot and said, you know, here's what I'm worried about. You know, here's this outcome. And I kind of showed them what it looked like. And I, I think that's definitely our superpower. All right. So for the moms listening and you're mentioning growth mindset, they might think they know what you're talking about, but they may not know exactly what you're talking about in contrast to what? So in contrast to a fixed mindset, and the reason I bring up growth and fixed mindset is because I see it so much in these kids who have disintegrated uh, around school. And so a fixed mindset is basically a mindset around how you think about how, how your intelligence works. So uh, individuals who are more fixed mindseted think, you know, they're smart as they are. Once they've hit their limit, there's nothing they can do to become smarter. So when they start to get feedback that suggests they're not being smart anymore. So these are the, the students who maybe were A students and all of a sudden are starting to get some Bs or Cs. Then what they do is they self-handicap and they try to avoid challenges and you know they do anything to uh, protect their self-esteem around being a smart kid. So um, they'll avoid challenges because they don't want to make mistakes. They won't ask for help because smart people don't ask for help. They should figure it out. They compare downward. So well, maybe I got a 75, but so-and-so got, you know, a 69 instead of comparing upwards. So the flip side of that is um, a growth mindset where you believe you can get smarter. 
which is actually what science tells us that you right. know the IQ IQ can vary as much as 18 points in adolescence. Wow. I know. It's shocking. Um, but it, that's that's the second most spongy time of the brain as far as being able to learn and make connections. So there's so much potential for growth. So that's what worries me about the kids who are more shut down in a fixed mindset, that they're not taking advantage of that wonderful spongy brain. But growth mindset kids will, um, or individuals, basically they will look for challenges, they will put in effort, and they're willing to risk making mistakes because they see that as a learning opportunity. They love feedback because, again, they take that as an opportunity to learn something, whereas a fixed mindset person might think, you know, oh, you're just telling me I'm not smart, and they kind of shut down when they get that kind of feedback. Now, that is so, so good because I see that all the time in my practice, and I'll hear, I'll hear the kids say, well, I'm just dumb. I'm not smart, and so that is a trigger for shame. And that's when like parents see the procrastination like you were talking about. They do. They completely shut down and they do think they're the have nots. They don't have it. I think for moms, you're listening. It looks like your kids don't care, but they are constantly comparing themselves to other kids. They know exactly what the other kids are making in terms of grades and going back to the data point thing. And so they do. So this growth mindset of like, Yeah, just the flexibility of those 18 IQ points and giving them some hope that, yeah, if this is that practical hope, like if you put some skin in the game, you're going to grow. Exactly. And how I message this to the students I work with, and so parents could try this as well, is just because you have a fixed mindset around academics doesn't mean you don't have a growth mindset somewhere else. So oftentimes these kids in their extracurricular, whether it be a sport or orchestra or debate or wherever it is, they have a great growth mindset. So I'll say to them, so, you know, do you listen to what your coach or instructor tells you? Oh yeah. Do you, do you try really hard and sometimes mess up, but you know, you just keep trying to master it. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's all the things I'm like, Oh, so do you approach school that way? And then they go, Oh no, I don't. <laughs> so they, they can feel the difference. Cause it's, it's one thing I've had kids sit and tell me, Oh yeah, I know what a fixed growth mindset is. And they'll tell me, I'm like, how do you know that? Oh, it's on the wall in my classroom. <laughs> but, but the kid sitting in front of me is a huge growth or a huge fixed mindset kid. So you know, he needed to be able to see where he was actually living a growth mindset to be able to understand how that would apply to school. Yes. So can kids have a fixed mindset about like a certain subject? Like I'm just not good at math or I'm just not good at science. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And usually it is math or science (laughs) or actually ELA is a big one too. ELA is a big one. When I was in graduate school, I had a fixed mindset about um, statistics. Oh, I actually taught statistics in, in grad school, which I don't know how that was possible. But no, I'm a reformed uh, fixed mindset person in general. I was probably not, I was probably in my 40s maybe by the time I went, oh, this is not helping me. Um, I would never would have written a book. I never would do public speaking. I, th- these things would have been way too risky way too many opportunities for me to get feedback that I wasn't good enough or smart enough or whatever enough. So, you know, it's never too late 
for yeah. us to kind of figure this out and work on it. No, this is really good stuff. So I want to go back a little bit for, for just a little bit about the data points. Because as, as you were talking, I was thinking the teens not only are kind of impacted by these data points, but I think moms are impacted by the data points and moms and dads. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why as moms, we can get so hyper-focused about numbers too. And, you know, you, you were preaching to the choir because I, for, first of all, I, like a big portion of my book, Dial Down the Drum, is mom really nurturing herself. I totally believe in the mom being a model for the kids. And like, we don't want to leave their mental health out the window or the relationship out the window. And, and moms, this is like the, the best part. Like, this is like really good news for us. Like, like you are a great parent if you actually enjoy your kid. Like you don't have to just, you know, be pushing and pushing and pushing and feel like that's your job. It's not good for anybody. And I, I think just opening up and like when you, I just want to come back because it's so important. Like when you were talking about the mom just saying, this is a very different conversation. It's just saying, look, and just making light of yourself, mom, because like this worked with my daughter and I would imagine it worked with your kids because they know that if you just kind of say, look, I know it's a little crazy. I've been really hard to be around and, um, but I'll tell you why. Here's why. Really? I'm just, I'm really stressed and I'm sorry I put that on you. Mm -hmm. I, that's so powerful. So powerful. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think once you do that once, you really do get strong feedback that lets you know that works. Yeah. From your does. kids. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'll take you one step further with the whole, you know, the parent, the mom being concerned about the data points. The problem is with this achievement culture is it's a trickle down kind of thing. So education, instead of being bottom up from the student on up, it's been top down. So students are responding to what parents and educators want from them and the colleges. Okay. The parents are responding to what the schools and the colleges want. The schools are responding to what the colleges and universities are asking for. The universities are responding to what employers are looking for. And then we have society at large, just how we view education. And it all has trickled down from there. So, you know, as much as I would love students not to feel the pressure of the achievement culture, and as much as I'd love parents to be able to, I mean, this is a, we can talk the talk all day long. Walking the walk in this achievement culture is incredibly hard because there are actual things at stake here for our kids. So, what, what needs to happen, I mean, we can, as parents, do our best with I, how I've approached it is talking to my kids about this culture and being kind of upfront about here's, here's why it's important. I don't agree with it. I wish it weren't important. And here's the degree that we're going to let it run our lives. But here's what we're operating in. You know, if you want to go to this college, this at this point, you are going to have to take an SAT or ACT and you're probably going to need to get this kind of score. You're probably going to need a GPA around here. 
there are any college, I mean, any college you want to go to, you can probably figure out, you know, for every kid, there's going to be some place that they're going to fit. So I always want to reassure any kid, you know, just because you can't get into this big four-year university kind of dream school, maybe, there are going to be plenty of other ones that you can get into that you will be very successful in, and you will be as well-educated and as prepared for the job market as anybody from an Ivy League school. I mean, the idea that this college determines your success, I just, I can't. <laughs> so, so I think that honest conversation, while this achievement culture still has its grasp on us, is realistic and helpful at this point. But ultimately, we need to start pressuring. We need to start pressuring the schools that need to start pressuring the universities that need to start pressuring the job market. Something has to, we have to do this together. We can't fix it. I mean, it has to be all those entities I just, all those stakeholders have to be on board with the same idea that we're going to change. We're going to make a shift here. We're going to somehow value the process of learning over the product of learning, which are those you know, grades and scores. And we got to figure that out. We know how to educate kids. We're great at that. We don't have to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't have to reinvent education. We just need to get back on a more sane path. We've kind of lost our way. Um, and I think it's completely doable as, as long as we all start talking about this. And, you know, if if we see things we don't think are okay, I mean, we start talking at a local level and see what we can do. Well said. I'll say amen. Yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. So with your book, you end with 77 tips to be productive and well, which I really enjoyed. So, okay, before we get into some of those, so what would you suggest for moms? Would you say like moms just read these off to the kids or like have them read it? What, like what would be the best way to get this information to them? So I wrote the book primarily for um, parents and educators and you know, therapists to kind of get an idea of what's going on. And even older students, I know a lot of high school and college students have read the book. So it gives sort of, I, you need that background. You need that understanding of all these forces that have come together to create this achievement culture, to create disintegrating students. And then the that last chapter is really, I write that directly to the student, almost how I would talk to them in coaching. And so what I would say to parents is that students could read those. So it, it's divided up in sections where you, if you had some issues around screens, you could just read those tips. The, the caution I give parents is, you know, if you just jump in and say, hey, I've got all these great things you can do to be productive and well, you're going to get the biggest eye roll ever. Um, so I would always suggest, you know, find maybe one or two things and, you know, maybe approach your child with that thing, or even just do it without them knowing you're doing it. Uh, you can somehow change the environment or the context to kind of support this, this strategy that I'm offering in the book. The other option is just to say, Hey, here, you might want to take a look at some of these things. And I've had a lot of students just sort of, once they read one or two of them, they think, oh, okay. Because again, we're giving them that sense of autonomy and control. And it's their idea, not their parents' idea. Because, you know, we all know if we suggest it, 
it becomes a really bad idea really fast. <laughs> so as much as we can make it their thing to do, I think that's really helpful. Yes, I agree. And I mean, I think marketing to our teens is always good. It's like, so for example, organization, if you want more time off, maybe a great way to get there is organization. So I think you would say like, what's in it for them? Like, why would they Mm -hmm. need to read this? But these are really good. So let me go through, uh, I'll I'll pick one or two from each category and you can talk about it. Uh, So in the first category you have is an organization. So can you talk a little bit about develop a school organization system? So a lot of students, particularly students with ADHD, but even students without any executive functioning uh, areas of concern tend to just throw everything and and particularly like in in school when they're in school and they get assignments and stuff and they just stick it in their backpack so I'm always looking for to help students either you know figure out a system because what they need to do is just something repeatedly so it becomes an automatic response I one of the things I love for an organization system starting early actually are there's they make like these I think there are eight by 12 clear pockets and you just put them in your backpack and you can just stick the papers in there. So, so if you've got a kid who is a stuffer, if they want to stuff in that clear um, pocket, then they can come home, take that pocket out and sort through what is homework, what's a permission slip, you know, and, and they won't miss anything because what happens is, you know, the crumpled thing that got in the wrong spot ended up down with the Rice Krispie treats, you know. <laughs> so we're just, we're looking to put some things in place. You know, color coding is, can be great for our kids. So everything red is math, everything blue is um, language arts, you know, whatever system like that may work. Great. All right. So in time management, you were talking about all sorts of things around calendars, master, monthly, daily calendar. Um, And then you talked about a pocket schedule. Can you talk about the pocket schedule? Pocket schedule is magic. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) It it is the one thing in conjunction with the master calendar I talk about is the one thing that works as a time management system for every single student I've come across. So even the students who have the most severe ADHD. Um, The problem is a lot of students think they're supposed to have an agenda and use an agenda. And the schools have given them agendas and they all start the school year well-intentioned, like I'm going to totally use my agenda this year. And they all tell me it lasts anywhere from two days to two weeks. And then it's closed, not opened again and found at the end of the year in their backpack. Right. Empty. (laughs) So, and the problem and the reason the agenda doesn't work is because it's too cumbersome. So the idea that they have to, I mean, you think about a high school student or a middle school student who, you know, in between classes, they've got a short amount of time. Usually the teacher's saying stuff as they're walking out the door and they're already packing up and they want to go out and talk to their friends in the hall on their way to the next class. So the idea is they pull out an agenda, open to the right page, write down what they need to write down, put it back. And it just, it doesn't happen. So the pocket schedule is basically working off their master calendar, which is just a calendar with their responsibilities on it. They would, the night before school, write, take a piece of paper, any piece of paper, put a line down the middle, 
left side, the column says today, the right side, you write later at the top of the column. And they're basically on the today side, going to write a little bit of a to-do list or a thing that things they want to accomplish that next day. So maybe they have to turn something in. Maybe they need to ask a teacher something. Maybe they need to follow up with a friend. Maybe they have practice after school, whatever it is they need to remember, they write on that today side. And then they fold it up, put it in their pocket. They can check it all day long, kind of remind themselves. And the later side comes in handy when it's the end of class and the teacher says, hey, don't forget, we've got a quiz on Thursday over blah, blah, blah. And they can just pull that piece of paper out really quickly and write down any of the things that come up during the day that they would normally say, oh, I'll remember. I'll remember, which they don't. They misremember, they remember too late, or they totally forget. And they all know that. So when I put that out there as a thing, what students find is um, it is very helpful to kind of keep them on track. And it just doesn't weigh them down as far as like the burden of it. Um, they find it, I, I call it a brain in your pocket. And that's how they'll describe it to me. It's like, I don't have to worry about this stuff because I know it's right here. So, and then they come home and they can, they can check, they can look at their today's side, you know, did they do it, everything? And if not, what needs to happen next? So again, this is part of the training them to plan a little bit better. So does it go on tomorrow's today list? Does it go back on the master calendar? Is it too late? Do you need to, you know, remediate something here? And then anything on the later side, they either do it right then or it goes on their master calendar and that's how they keep up with it. That's so good. I think that's good for me too. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's just cut and dry. Yeah, simple is super good. And study skills and habits, you talk about mind the middle. Can you talk about that? So, uh, and I use, I talk about this with students when I'm trying to encourage them to study in shorter bursts. So I like students to study in 20, 30 minute time frames, time chunks. Um, instead of what I hear from students is, oh, I studied for three or four hours. You know, I just sat down and powered through. Well, they probably got 45 minutes of decent studying out of that three or four hours. And what ends up happening, our brains, from a memory perspective, we remember things at the beginning really well. So we have a primacy effect. So if I gave you a list of numbers, you're going to remember the first numbers uh, much better than the ones that come, you know, kind of later down the list. And there's also a recency effect. So the kind of the end stuff that we put into our brains will tend to remember. So if a student sits down for three hours and studies, then there's this huge chunk in the middle that is just fuzzy gray. Mm. And so that's the whole, you know, if I explain that to them, then they can buy into, here's why you need to take a break every 20 to 40 minutes max. And then you'll have a chunk of learning with very little middle that's going to get, you know, washed out and then take a five or 10 minute break and then, you know, rinse and repeat, do another 20, 30 minutes and, and take another break. Oh, that's really good. So you, you have mindset and we talked about the growth mindset and you have um, tips on stress and sleep, but we're going to talk about screens so I think every mom will be curious about this. Your tip on make your screens less exciting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if we, everything that happens on our screens, and we all as parents, every human can, who has a 
smartphone can relate to this, you know, we become, I mean, addicted is not exactly the right word, but we like the feeling we get when we get notifications, when there's something interesting, our brains like to scroll. There's no, you know, there's no end to a scroll, like in reading a book where the chapter ends or the section ends. So our devices are actually meant to uh, give us little squirts of dopamine, which is the brain chemical that happens when you know, we feel pleasure or happiness. And seeing notifications, th- seeing things come up, will just the anticipation will cause the dopamine to happen. So that's why it's really hard to put our phones down and leave them. So if we can take some of the color down so we can grayscale our phones, take the notifications, the um, buzzing, the dings, whatever is happening that basically is triggering our brain to anticipate and need to touch our phones, that can help. And so you you can do that temporarily just to kind of, you know, if you feel like you just need to um, take a little bit of a a breather, a step back. Uh, we're just trying to basically try to make our phones a little less engaging. We're trying to undo um, the masterful work <laughs> that the tech has has managed to spring on us. So that's that's one thing that you can do. Yes. Well, this content is so rich, and we've only gone through three tips out of seventy-seven moms. So this these tips are all in the, her book. So any last words of wisdom for our moms? I would just say, you know, take a nice deep breath, love your kids. And I've tried to, my mantra lately has been witness. I'm trying to be more of a witness as my kids get older and less of a, (laughs) I don't know what I was before, but (laughs) I think I definitely had my hands in there a lot. So, you know, we're just every day we're doing our best. So just hang in there. Yes, that's great. So how can moms learn more about you and learn more about the book and how can they contact you? So I have a website, janinegeno.com. And so there's links to the book is available on July 27th. So it's available for pre-order now. It'll be in stores and everything on the 27th. I have a newsletter that if you go to my website, you can sign up for that. It's basically, I guess, a blog. Once a month, I whatever's on my mind, I call it Some Thoughts. It goes out and I share some resources on there um, and just try to keep anybody interested up to date on what I'm thinking about. Are you on Instagram? I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Okay. Yay. All right. Well, I will make <laughs> sure the moms can find you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I've loved our, yes, yes. Well, I've loved our conversation today and I know my moms are going to just love it. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give How Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me 
at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.